Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Happy Friday, everybody. You know, I've done almost 160 episodes by now, which is mind-blowing, to be honest with you. So I figured it was time to sit down and, and give you a bit of background on myself, who I am, what I'm doing, and really why I started the podcast. And just to be transparent here, this is something my marketing folks have been trying to get me to do for a while. I was resistant. I didn't feel like people, you know, would care, to be honest. But I... As I've kind of mentioned on the show before, I'm a member of YPO. And as one of my YPO forums, we went through an exercise of putting together your life story, particularly around finance and money and wealth. And I, I took it very seriously. I put a lot of time into it. And I found that I enjoyed it. And then when I presented it to my forum, I found it to be very cathartic and it seemed to resonate. And so I thought I need to get over my insecurities and, or my ego or both. And, you know, I'm sure folks out there have heard my, the version that I tell when I go on a podcast or when I kind of do a pitch, but there's a lot more to it as I'm sure you would expect. So hopefully this is useful and informative and I hope you enjoyed it. So, you know, I'll start, I was born in a very small town town is probably being generous, honestly, outside of Albany, New York. My family has been in that part of the world for a long time, kind of since the 17th century. And I grew up out in the country. So my my dad is a, a gentleman farmer, as I often say. And the town or the village that I grew up in does not have a stoplight. We didn't have cable television. We didn't have 911. It was about 45 minutes northeast of Albany, New York, right on the Vermont border. And so it was very, um, very small place and very rural, mostly agrarian based economy. And yeah, my parents were high school sweethearts in 
northern New Jersey. My dad's family had been going to this part of New York for a long time. They had a farm up there that my father would go to in the in the summer and, and sometimes the winter when he was on break. When my parents met and they got married, they wanted to have a, I don't know, a simpler, quieter life for their family than what they experienced growing up outside of New York City. And so after law school, they moved there and they bought this old ramshackle Victorian farmhouse. And my dad's parents cried when they saw it. It was in such despair or they were in such despair. It was in in a bad state. But, you know, it was a great place to grow up. We had a wonderful childhood. My dad is a very successful attorney. He's now retired. My mom's a child psychologist, also retired, which that's a whole different kettle of fish. I have one younger brother. He's about five years younger than I am. He works at a private school in Colorado, in Vail, actually. He's got a, a great gig. And yeah, we we grew up out in the country. We went to private school. I went to a, a great school in Albany, which I'll get to in a minute. But it was a very idyllic childhood. My, my dad worked a lot, but we had a lot of outdoor time. We had a lot of land. And it was a great place to grow up. Regarding money, my father comes from a very old family that has do- had done well over the years. My mother was a third generation Irish immigrant family who had kind of bootstrapped it and also done well. And the part of New Jersey they're from is very affluent. And so we lived comfortably growing up. You know, we took family vacations, went to the best private schools that we could, drove nice cars. My brother and I were told to just go to the best school that we could get into and not worry about the cost or having to get any kind of financial aid or student loans like that. And, you know, but we didn't talk about money. It was not something we discussed. And, you know, to this day, I'm not really sure how much money my parents have or what they made. It just was a a very kind of taboo subject. I'm sure not different than a lot of other kind of families that grow up kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. My dad, again, very smart guy, worked really hard, worked a lot. And my mom, you know, same thing. She went back to school. My brother and I were in, I guess, early high school, middle school, just to get her PhD and carved out a nice consulting practice for herself. And yeah, I mean, we, we did well, but money was just not something that we kind of talked about. So um, in terms of education, my, my, like I mentioned, we went to the best school in the area, which was called Albany Academy. It was an all boys military school. It kind of this old school place, beautiful building, a lot of rich history, been there for a long time. It's since merged with the sister school. And so it's now co-ed, it's no longer military, but it was a great experience. It was a good academic school, very much oriented towards sports. We had really good sports teams, something we took a lot of pride in. And I played hockey and lacrosse growing up. So I played on these teams in high school and had decent success in hockey. It was not that great. I loved it, but I was much better at lacrosse. And we had a really strong lacrosse program when I was there. I sent a number of kids to D1 and a couple won a national championship at their respective schools and had a couple of guys play in the Team USA squad. So that was a great experience. I, I was a super strong student in high school, straight A's. You know, the leadership component of the military program was great. This is kind of in the 90s. So I was not so pre 9-11, so a little bit of a different deal. I was not that into the military component, but kind of kept my head down and got through it. I was not terribly social. I had a kind of small group of friends, but I was really focused on just kind of being the best lacrosse player I could be, 
kind of doing as well as I could do in the classroom and then hoping to get into the best school that I could get away with. And so when I went to my advisor and they said, hey, you know, where do you want to go to school? I said, hey, this place has been great, but I'm, I'm ready for something completely different. And I want to play lacrosse and I want a strong academic school. And the guidance counselor said, you should check out the school called Wesleyan. And I did. It kind of checked all the boxes. I, I went up there for a recruiting visit. I got recruited, had a great time, just kind of clicked. Like I hear a lot of students say when they went on campus, for whatever reason, it just kind of worked for them. And I applied early decision and got in. I had a great experience there. It was really involved with my fraternity, had a great lacrosse experience there, made some incredible friends and had a ton of fun. In a lot of ways, I figured out my social identity, really challenged a lot of assumptions that I had had in terms of, you know, I come from a, a fairly white school where most people were conservative and Wesleyan is a very diverse place with people who believe very different things than many of the people I grew up with, which was very challenging and I think healthy for me at the time, spiritually, academically, socially, et cetera. So I was a liberal arts major in the true sense of the word. And I met my wife actually on the first day of school. So we met at orientation and um, stayed kind of friends with her throughout my time there. We finally started dating when I was a senior and she's been my you know, first and only kind of girlfriend woman in my life. We've been married for 14 years now. And it really changed the whole trajectory of my life. At the time, I you know, was a little bit aimless. I had applied to the JET program, which is teaching English in Japan. And I'd been accepted, so I was planning on doing that just because I didn't have a better plan, honestly. But I quickly pivoted away from that, ended up going to Washington, D.C. with her because I was her friend. I'm sorry, her plan. And you know, all my friends thought I was crazy, that I was making all these decisions based on going out with somebody for a very short period of time. But we lived in D.C., had a wonderful time, have great memories from there. Ended up moving to Boston. You know, she, my wife is super smart. So she got into Harvard for the Graduate School of Education. I went to Suffolk Law. And Boston was great. Law school was not that much fun, frankly. It was not a great experience for me. I hated it, you know, from day one. But very stubborn person and just kind of grinded it out for three years, hoping that, you know, I could figure it out. Honestly, looking back on it, I did a very classic cliche type of decision where I didn't have a better plan. And so I thought law school would be a place where I could kill some time, for lack of a better term, and figure it out from there, which is never a good good idea, frankly. But I graduated in 2009, right at the height of the Great Recession. So the job offer I had lined up was kind of rescinded due to hiring freeze and budget cuts. It was a very challenging period of time for me. I remember I applied to, for a position as a barista at a coffee shop in Nashville, and I was rejected because I didn't have enough experience. Ended up volunteering at the DA's office because that old adage of it's easier to get a job when you have a job. And um, it was true. So I kind of did that. My wife was very supportive and finally did get a, a part-time job and then a full-time job. And it was a great place to just kind of be and cut my teeth as a young lawyer. It's kind of a fun job being in court every day and meeting these crazy people and hearing these crazy stories and seeing this very different life than I knew. And I think it was good exposure, honestly, for me to know how this kind of other world looked. And it, I got to know Nashville pretty well. Not the parts that my wife and I lived in, but usually other parts. But I knew I was not a lifer. That's the kind of job you have for five or 50 years. And I was not a 50-year type of person. So um, 
you know, luckily, you know, my, my wife's family has a family office based in Nashville. And so when I got married, I joined the family board as an ex officio member. So I, I'm a non-lineal, so I couldn't vote, but I could observe. And through my father-in-law and our CIO and some other folks, I got to learn about commercial real estate, private equity, and met GPs and sponsors and fund managers and opened up this whole new world to me that I didn't know, you know, frankly existed. And it was terrific, changed the course of my life. And uh, I reconnected with an old high school friend and I met my current business partner through a mutual New York connection. We ended up raising a small fund of kind of urban infill properties in Nashville. But frankly, you know, the partnership was a bit of a mess. Nobody was full time. We weren't fully committed, which we had disclosed to the LPs, but still it finally came to a head and, you know, one partner exited, the other one stayed. And we ultimately ended up raising three funds total together under my legacy firm. And what we started opening up deal by deal kind of sidecar opportunities and uh, did some JV deals, some larger groups. And we ended up raising a decent amount of capital, did a large number of opportunities, but we grew kind of too fast. We were good at raising capital. I was really good networker, business development person, but we just didn't have the infrastructure, reporting, investor relations, you know, communication, the back office. And so it just was a challenge. I mean, we didn't really, I didn't appreciate the fact that we had this kind of component of the business that was a small business that was separate from the real estate part of it. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash capital club podcast for more information and to sign up today. And so, you know, ended up going through a challenging period there where some investors, you know, were frustrated by the, by all the things that I mentioned before, the lack of reporting and communication and, and all that. So we ended up recapitalizing that portfolio with an institutional partner. And, you know, I started Excelsior. I took two team members with me and decided that I wanted to have kind of a pure play deal by deal syndication platform, learn from my mistakes, you know, not repeat them. And so that's exactly what I did. I worked really hard at it. I hired first person I I hired was a marketing person because that was something that we didn't do before. And it was really important just for the investor experience. And so I, I found somebody who I thought was best in class, hired her. Next thing I did was hire a controller, which again was something we did not do before that I thought was a big mistake. And so I hired a CPA with a public accounting background to be my controller. I went out and got kind of the best in class investor relations portal that we could. And we were all kind of ramped up and ready to go. And then, you know, we did two or three deals, but COVID hit. And it obviously was a very difficult time and a very quiet time. Nothing was happening there today. We had time on our hands. And so what we did was we got really, really deep on content marketing, social media. We mapped out the entire investor journey, the entire investor experience step-by-step. And we thought to ourselves, if we could build the perfect kind of platform machine to make that experience for the investors seamless and smooth, really easy, we became very empathetic and put ourselves in the shoes of our LPs. Like what would it look like? Everything from how the email would be delivered 
follow-up cadence, what we would include in the deal, email itself, et cetera. And we worked on that for about a year during COVID. And then in 2020, 2021, kind of turned the machine on and just had incredible growth. So over the last two years, I'm recording this at the end of the year of in December of 2022. We have 25 assets today in the portfolio with roughly 225 million of AUM, 10 employees. You know, it's an incredible platform. It's a great company. I work with unbelievable people. And it's funny when I'm recording this today, December, 2022, we're again going kind of full cycle where people are worried about a recession, rates are high, people are nervous. It's not as bad as COVID, obviously, thank God, but it does kind of remind me of going through a period of relative quiet and how we can kind of audit our processes and systems and get smarter and better when the world turns and we can be ready to you know, deploy capital. So today we're very focused on operating and managing the portfolio that we have and trying to get great returns for the LPs. And then as well as acquire that much property, we, we do have some onboarding and some, it gives us some time to digest a little bit of everything that we've done there. And maybe, you know, giving you a, a snapshot of what my life looks like today. So I've been married, like I referenced 14 years Love of my life. We have a good, healthy relationship. She's terrific. I've got two boys who are nine and six, and they're doing really well. They're good kids, smart. They care. They're kind. And so when I'm not working, I'm trying really hard to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to make them not be jerks, have them be good, decent people who care, want to do well and do right. And so that's where I spend a lot of my evenings and weekends. And then I have two dogs, you know, I have a, what I say is a hall of fame, German shepherd. She's first ballot hall of famer, unbelievable. And then a pretty mediocre Corgi, but she's entertaining. And uh, we live in our forever home in Nashville. We have a family compound here in town with my wife's family. Very fortunate to have a big piece of property. That's a ton of fun to live on and we enjoy it. And Nashville just in general is booming. So it's a really fun time to be here. There's a lot going on always something happening. And so it's an exciting time to be here. And yeah, we'll see what the next chapter holds, but that's a little bit more fleshed out version of my story. And if you made it this far and, and stuck with me, thanks for doing so. And, you know, I thought we'd maybe do like the speed round of questions if you're interested. First ever real estate deal that I did, I, we bought this small little office building in Music Row and it had two tenants, both music publishing company, old school Nashville music people in there. And it was, you know, it was an adventure to say the least. Ended up being a really good deal. We sold it as part of an assemblage to an apartment developer. And it was horrifically painful to get that deal done. And there's there's some crazy stories there, like every real estate person has. But that was the first that we did, I guess, that we bought it in 2010. We probably sold it in 20, gosh, 13, 14. I have to go back and look. But yeah, it was a good round trip. If I had to give myself some advice now that I'm looking back, when I started out in raising capital, what advice would I give myself? You know, I've said this on a lot of shows before, but like many people, when I was out there beating the streets, I had a lot of energy and I wasn't afraid to talk to anybody or take any meeting, but I should have been going at those opportunities with a more empathetic eye. And so as opposed to just kind of 
showing people my shiny object and telling them how great I was, I should have been asking more questions. I should have been asking people, well, what would be ideal for you? And what would you like to see? What would, what would make sense for you? Right. And as opposed to me just talking with eye sentences, this kind of ego driven conversation, I should have been listening more and then just giving people a solution set to their problems. That would be my number one kind of piece of advice. If I could go kind of in the DeLorean and go back in time and say, Hey, you'll save yourself a lot of effort. But the flip side of that is there's a reason raising capital is hard. It's supposed to be a process. It's supposed to be challenging. And that's how you ultimately learn. There's no turnkey solution, I think is the biggest thing I've taken away from doing this for 11 years now. After years of in the business, what is it that you think investors really value? It's cliche, but I think it's relationship and trust. You know, Not all deals are going to be great, we all hope they are, but that's not realistic. So people just want to make sure that you have their best interests in mind and you're working really hard to do the best you can for their capital. And I, I think increasingly people value that transparency, that communication, that experience of being an investor. And so it's been good because technology has enabled us to really do that at scale. And I think in a positive way for the industry, investors also have a higher expectation, right? They're, they're pushing sponsors to level up their game, which is, which is good. And here's one. These questions are from my marketing person. And this is a funny one. She says, since you always ask your guests about the one thing they do every day that brings them peace, what is yours? So this is a question. This is the first podcast you've ever heard me on. I ask my guests if there's a daily habit they use to bring them peace in their life. You know, we're trying to find this way to have this kind of, I didn't want to just do the same five questions but I, I'm kind of interested, right? We all live this chaotic life. There seems to be all these things happening constantly. And I was curious, like, what do people do, you know? Or do you, is there something you do? Maybe we're all just winging it. I don't know. And it's interesting. I'll do a post about this, but the responses are relatively, they're all different, obviously, but they're relatively patterned around the same things. And so it's been really enlightening. And it's funny, people, when I ask, I don't show, I don't ask them in the intake form. So they're, they're not expecting the question. I don't prep them for it because I want them to be real and I want to be valuable to the listener. I don't want them to just come up and think of something beforehand that makes them sound really cool. Right. In any event, the thing that I do is I find that my, um, like a lot of people, my business and my kids and my marriage and my, my mental health, my physical health, it, there's a lot going on. And so I find routine to be very grounding. And I really find it helps me to stay present, stay focused. And so I wake up at 4.10 in the morning. I actually wake up at, I, the alarm is set for 4.01. And then I have hit the snooze button. And then another alarm goes on at 4.10. And at 4.10, I do the same thing every morning that I'm home. 4.10, my corgi sleeps next to me on the floor. I wake up, turn the alarm off, pet her. And then I go start a cup of coffee and I take them, I take the two dogs out for a walk so they can do their morning business. And it's beautiful that early in the morning, it's so quiet outside. And we have this pond in our backyard. We can kind of look at the ponds. I look at the, the sky, walk around for a little bit. They do their thing. And I find it very restorative. And people who get up early know what I mean. It's just there's something about the sound of that time of day is very peaceful. And then I get in, I have some coffee. I scroll my email and see if there's anything crazy. I read the news 
And then I go to the gym on the way to the gym. I usually listen to a podcast or an audible. I'm at the gym at 4.53, 4.55 for a five o'clock class. And then I'm back home at 6.13 typically and grab a quick shower. And then I get the boys up at 6.30 to get them out the door at 7.20. And then my day pretty much starts at 7.30 or 8 o'clock. The meetings, calls, the chaos machine starts moving. But that's my routine. That's my peacetime is that 4.30 to 6.30 time frame. And it's kind of my time. And I know the days that I don't do it, it's just not right. So anyways, long-winded answer, but that's my routine. Well, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you've kind of subscribed and you follow us on all the social media channels and stay up to date with everything we're doing on Capital Club, including the podcast. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend and I look forward to seeing you in the episode soon and stay safe out there. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.